Gracious God, we ask that you would speak to us today, that you would even now be opening up our ears that we might hear things in new ways and open up our eyes that we might be a people who see and open up our, our hearts and our minds and our souls that we might be changed. Lord, we pray these things in the strong name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. Uh, for years, the opening introduction of the show, The Wide World of Sports, we're going way back in time now, but for years, the introduction of that show included not just the joy of winning, but the agony of defeat. And one of the ways that they illustrated that was with the painful ending of an attempted ski jump. Uh, the skier appears in good form as he's heading down the jump, but then for no apparent reason, he tumbles head over heels and just kind of falls off the edge of the jump and hits the supporting structure on his way down the hill. It looks like it's part of a sports blooper reel. Uh, what most viewers don't know was that that skier chose to fall instead of finishing the jump. The obvious question is why? Why would anyone ever just choose to fall in such a graceless way? Uh, as he explained later, the jump surface had become too slick, too fast, and midway down the ramp, he realized that if he completed the jump, he would land on the level ground way beyond the safe sloping area where you're supposed to. In other words, he would have landed in a place that would have been dangerous if not fatal. And so, he chose to fall a short way instead of a very long way. And he suffered no more than a headache, and I can only imagine a lot of bruising from his tumble. Alas, it also illustrates that a change in one's course can often be dramatic, if not outright, sometimes painful, but also better than a fatal landing in the end. I wonder if you've ever experienced that. I mean, you're going one way, and suddenly you realize you're going the wrong way. And despite how much we don't normally want to change, despite how hard it is normally to change, despite how much it may hurt to change, you realize that it's the best option. Instead, instead, so instead of going off the end of the ski ramp, you take a dive, and you go head over heels a few times, and yet survive. But there's that decision point. There's that decision point as you're, as you're going where you have to decide, either I go or I bail. Either I go this way or I go that way. And all the while, you're going faster and faster, and the momentum is getting more and more uncontrollable. Today, among other things, we're going to be talking about important changes like that. How do you change direction? But first, let me back up. This summer, we are working our way through the parables of Jesus because this is one of the primary ways that Jesus taught His disciples is through these short little stories. Uh, remember, these are common everyday stories uh, that a teacher just sort of drops there in the middle of a conversation. Sometimes Jesus says, and here's what it means. Most of the time, He doesn't. One time there was a guy, he uh, went down the street. 
Anyway, he just kind of puts these stories there and, well, obviously it had something to do with the road and the walking and the, the following, or was he just distracted for a moment? He just tells these stories, he lays them there, and then he keeps going. And, and part of the problem is he doesn't always tell us what they mean. Part of the problem is because of their simplicity and their ordinary, ordinariness, it can be easy to just overlook them. And, and so part of the challenge is how do we understand these stories? More to the point, it's harder for some days because we've studied these stories before. And so we already know what they mean. But these are tools that Jesus gave us to try and change us. The reason He told these stories was because we were this way and He wants us to be that way. He wants us to change. And so we have to hear these stories and sit with these stories and engage with these stories so that we can respond to them. And so if you would, I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, verse 1. Uh, today we will begin with maybe the strangest parable that we will be talking about all summer long. Uh, so Matthew 16, 1. After we read it, I'm going to stop and talk about it for a bit, and then we're going to keep going and read the next parable and then see if we can't tie the whole thing together. But let's begin today with the parable of the dishonest or shrewd manager. Luke 16, 1. Jesus told His disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. Manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of the master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, make it 450. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than they are the people of light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. And we'll stop there for a minute. Kind of a strange one. 
Obviously, we need to be a little bit more careful with this one because some parables are allegories, which means everything kind of stands for something. This may not be one of those. Because if it is, then God is like a manager who commends dishonesty, and we make shrewdness the mark of discipleship, and that doesn't quite sound right to me. Instead, maybe a better frame to put around this parable is that it is more of an analogy. Here is a picture that is like something else. Like in many other parables, Jesus may be making His point by contrast. If this is how a shrewd manager does it, how much more, how much better can we? But with that as the warning, let's make sure we understand this odd little parable. We begin with a rich man, which is not normally a good thing in the Gospel of Luke. What's worse, he's got a manager who seems to be wasting his possessions. It's not entirely clear whether this manager is incompetent in his administration, or he's inattentive in his management, or he's unethical in his stewardship. But either way, he's not being very respectful or responsible for his master's goods, and therefore, he's about to be fired. And we suspect that maybe he's been overly enjoying his position and the privilege that comes with it. Maybe he's forgotten that he's a steward, not the master. Maybe he's forgotten that all that he's been given isn't actually his. But again, either way, he realizes that all of that's about to change, and so he goes into action. He brings in some of the rich man's debtors, and he cuts their large debts significantly, each by about 500 denarii, thinking, if I help these people out a lot, then when I need help, they'll be able to help me. Our assumption at that point is that he's going to be fired a lot sooner now because he's mismanaged even worse than he had before, which is why we're so surprised when the master shows up and ends up commending this dishonest servant for acting shrewdly, wisely, if not also a little bit underhandedly. Though it's important to notice that our manager isn't being commended for his dishonesty, he's being commended for getting into action. He's being commended for, for moving decisively. He's being commended for changing his ways. Prior to this, our dishonest manager isn't overly concerned with the future until he hears the, the branch kind of creak underneath him, and all of a sudden, he sees things differently, and his behavior changes accordingly. Jesus finishes the parable by pointing out that whoever can be trusted with very little can be trusted with much, and whoever can't be trusted with little can't be trusted with much because character gets lived out. But this also means that we are given that choice. We can change. As we choose to act differently, we are changed on the inside. And at this point, it seems like part of Jesus' message is that if this dishonest manager has become aware of this new reality all around him and then acts decisively to live into this new reality, how much more can we who have been changed by Jesus' new reality, continue to live into it. But we'll get there. Hold on to all that. Let me keep reading. We'll pick up in verse 19. 
There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Amen. All right, parable number two, almost as confusing as the first one, almost as strange. We have another rich man. This time there's also a poor man. And they couldn't be more different, more diverse, more distant, despite their proximity to each other. The rich man is clothed in purple. That was an expensive fabric, but it wasn't just expensive in this time. It was actually regulated by the Romans. And so this is a person of some means and some status. More than that, he lives in luxury every day. This isn't a party once in a while or on a weekend. This is a lavish lifestyle. And then there's this poor man, covered in sores, he's starving, he's suffering in shame. Even the unclean wild dogs come and take advantage of him. And yet he's also the only character in all the parables, really, that Jesus gives a name. Again, in contrast to the rich man. For what it's worth, this probably isn't referring to Jesus' friend Lazarus. That was a common name back then. And so it it probably was Jesus saying, there was a guy, uh, Bob, and just kind of grabbing a name and using it here. Or he was talking about his friend. We don't know. Probably not his friend. Despite Lazarus being at the rich man's gate, he can only long for the crumbs and the trash that fall from the rich man's table. And for his part, it seems like our rich man doesn't even know that Lazarus is there and frankly wouldn't really care even if he did. Again, these two couldn't be more separate. And then they both die, which isn't a bad reminder of the transient nature of this life. Whether you have or have not, the end of this part of life looks the same. But of course, that's not the end of the parable because Jesus then turns the table on the other side because, Jesus is carry, uh, because Lazarus is carried to Abraham's side and the rich man ends up in Hades. And again, they are divided by this uncrossable gulf. 
Interestingly, our rich man hasn't changed very much. As we find him telling Abraham to order Lazarus to serve him some water uh, and, and send him over here. I've got some errands for him to run while he's up there. And again, Abraham explains that that isn't how things work anymore. The rest of the family will have to notice what the Scriptures say. The end. This second parable, there's a oddly reminiscent of the Charles Dickens' Christmas carols. You'll be visited by three ghosts. Um, at first blush, the second parable seems to again be pointing us to look a little bit farther into the future as we recognize that how we live now matters. It also points us towards stewardship as well, and it points us to an ability to be changed. So with all of that as background, let's see if we can't spend the rest of our time trying to tie these parables together as we try and apply them to our lives. Because the reality is that clearly Jesus, not to mention Luke, is trying to make a point by putting these two parables right next to each other. What does the dishonest servant do right? And what does our rich man do wrong? Because at the end of the day, I think those questions may lead us to the answer. So, I want us to spend a little time today comparing and contrasting these two characters to try and figure out what Jesus might be saying to us. And we begin, we begin by just comparing, comparing their stewardship. Because implicit or explicit in both of these stories is that these two men are stewards of another's resources. They are responsible for how they are using what they've been given. They are accountable for their behavior. The dishonest servant clearly is a steward of his master. The master has entrusted this role, these resources to the servant, and therefore how the servant does his job will impact not just the master, but also the entire household. And so the quality of the servant's stewardship matters. Jesus ends the parable by concluding that we also have a choice when it comes to our stewardship. We can serve all of the stuff and all of the status, or we can serve God. We, we can serve all that has been created, or we can serve the Creator, but you can't do both. In the second parable, while we don't see anyone that the rich man is directly accountable to, clearly Jesus' point is that he is still accountable to God for his wealth, for his neighbors, for his community, and how he stewards them. And while that may not be clear to the rich man initially, he doesn't seem very surprised by his fate at the end of the story. What's more, it's confirming that he wants to warn his siblings because that implies that he's aware and accepting of what has happened to him and knows that they're going to follow suit if they don't change. But notice in both of these parables, there's an expectation that they are using what they've been given, not just well, but for the purposes of their master or for God. And at the beginning of both parables, both are doing that job poorly. Which brings us to the next point of comparison, though here we start to see the contrast. Because both characters receive a warning. The dishonest servant's master calls attention to his mismanagement, and the master even lets him know that he's about to be fired because of his bad stewardship. 
But then strangely, in the way that Jesus tells this story, there's this in-between time that allows the man to change his ways or, or to respond in some different way. The master doesn't say, you are fired. The master says, you're about to be fired. In other words, there's still time to change the outcome of the story, but not much, which is why it's a warning. In the second parable, the warning comes in in two places, though noticeably more subtle. The way the parable is told, there's a rich man, and then at his gate is Lazarus, who is longing for whatever excess can be spared. And the sense that we get is that the rich man should notice Lazarus, should be aware of Lazarus, should care for Lazarus, should do something. Only he doesn't. I also wonder if the the rich man is just too busy, too hurried as he lives in luxury every day. I wonder if that is why he has so much trouble attending to what was truly important. What's more, as if that's not enough, at the end of the passage, when the rich man asks for a warning to be sent to his siblings, Abraham points out that they already have been given a warning through Moses and the prophets. In other words, our scriptures should serve as warning enough of what God wants and expects of His people and of His stewards. But again, clearly our rich man didn't hear or heed the warning. And now we start to see how these two characters are different. In both cases, there is a warning, but the first steward hears it, recognizes it, and then will respond to it. The second doesn't see, doesn't notice, doesn't hear, and therefore won't respond. In other words, both of these stories seems to be trying to to shake us out of our apathy or awaken us out of our slumber or discomfort us out of our lethargy. And both leave us with the, the question, are you paying attention? Which brings us to the most important part of our comparison where we see the contrast in how they respond. And of course, our dishonest servant, ironically, does respond. He feels the urgency and he responds intentionally. He recognizes that the status quo is no longer good enough and he actively, visibly repents and changes his ways. He was living one way, now he is living in a different way. He's changed. Of course, the rich man does not respond like that. And like we just talked about, part of this is due to the fact that he didn't even see, didn't even hear, didn't even notice anything that would cause him to change. But maybe the deeper part of that is he just doesn't care. Before we try and just let him off the hook for not knowing, ignorance, obliviousness, let's recognize that he's not much better when the story picks up after his death. He still doesn't see Lazarus as a person. Still doesn't extend any mercy toward Lazarus. Still doesn't recognize his own faults and failings in any of this. He's still having trouble taking any responsibility. He's still not changed. At best, he's hoping for better for his siblings. But even there, he's not taking much responsibility for himself. 
and he seems pretty unaware of God. Which brings it all the way back to us. Because sometimes we don't like to change either. Sometimes we get going so much in one direction that it's hard for us to do something different. We get so caught up in the day-to-day of life. Tomorrow's a new week. Well, today's a new week for you. Tomorrow's a new week for me. I start my weeks on Monday. Um, It's a new week, and then you go through the motions of that week, and then it's another week, and you go through the motions of that week, and then the calendar keeps... It's so easy to get caught up in just the day-to-day that it's hard to be aware. It's hard to hear the warning. It's hard to recognize maybe we're going the wrong way sometimes, and even harder to then change. We know we could be better stewards of all that God has given us. And I'm not just talking about giving to the church. That's not the season we're in. That's in October. You've got time for that. Uh, But stewardship much larger than that. Everything you have, everything you've been given, everyone that God has placed in your midst, entrusted to your care, we are called to be good stewards. Ironically, in the story, it's not just the the rich man's stuff that God's concerned about, it's Lazarus. He's right there at your gate, and you're not doing anything about it. Jesus seems to be calling us to more intentional and graceful and faithful stewardship. And the question seems to be, are you willing, able to change? God has given us everything even himself, how well are we stewarding that? Let's pray. Lord God, this is a, well, two harder parables for us to hear. Lord, there are parables of grace, but there's also parables where you poke us, where you try and awaken us that you call us. And we pray that we would recognize that you love us enough that you want us to change, that you want the best for us. But that may mean we need to live differently. And so we pray that you would continue to be opening up our eyes and ears and hearts and minds that we might follow you, to be- follow you better not just today, but but every day, that you would change us from the inside out and the outside in, that you would fill us and renew us. Lord, we pray these things in the strong name of Jesus the Christ. Amen.